you can see it in their eyes how guilty they felt announcing that they were having kids. And my definition of success has greatly changed since my mum passed. Anything we did was life or death. You've been, been through a lot. You've been through an awful lot. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. And today you're in for a treat. This guy is one of my first mentoring clients. Now, he worked for me many years ago. I trained him indirectly many times. But when he came to me and said, Spence, I want to build my business and I don't know how to use social media. I don't know how to create content. I jumped at the chance to offer him some help. Since then, he's gone on to create some phenomenal content that has really connected with the audience. His name is Joe Woodhouse, but he's so much more than content. The journey he's been on and the pain he has suffered will touch every single one of you. So let's tune into this episode, hear this journey about this lad from Sheffield, what he did to achieve greatness, the challenges he faced, and all of the heartbreak along the way. Cue the music. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Quite a strange old situation having you sat here in front of me. <laughs> Watched a few of these before. Let's, uh, let, let's for the benefit of everybody that's, that's listening and watching this today, mm -hmm. how long ago did I meet you? 2010, we first met. So 13 years, right? And 13 years ago, you came to work in an office that I was responsible for down in Abu Dhabi, and you'd just come out of the UK as a financial advisor with a bank. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. 20, I was 22 at the time. Hmm. Why don't you tell the story? <laughs> I feel like when I tell it... It's Honestly, like... or the honest version <laughs> of the story? Or the... Can't, I, want you to, I want you to be honest. That's probably the, the, the most important thing is that you're honest. Right, okay. Just take us back to, to, to you know, you, what, what do you do for a living and, and how did you get into that industry? I've been in financial services now for almost 19 years. Um, so my background, I worked in retail banking with what was Lloyd's TSB at the time. And I came, I moved out to the Middle East, well, moved out to Abu Dhabi in February 2010 to work for yours truly um, <laughs> in the Abu Dhabi office. Um, yeah, and I suppose the rest is history, as they say. But you, you came out, was that, that's, I mean, moving out from Sheffield to anywhere in the UK is a big step, but then getting on a plane and coming to Abu Dhabi, a place probably you didn't know anything about. Well, at the time, and this was just, I think this, the first F1, I think was 2010 in Abu Dhabi. Right. There'd not been an F1. It wasn't on the map like Dubai was back then. Yeah. Um, and the amount of people where I said, oh, I'm moving to Abu Dhabi, that went, oh, is that in Wales? Like, no. Hey, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's have a wrist with. <laughs> <laughs> So, so when you when you turned up there the first time, had had you been and checked it out before, or did you, that when you moved there was it your first? It was my first time there, but I was quite lucky in the respect that John Green, um, so my my old boss at the time, my line manager, I worked with John at the bank before, so I came out to work directly with John. Yeah. Um, so I knew John, I trusted John, so and he put me up for the first six or seven months while I was living there as well. So I had a bit of a soft landing, really. Um, so I had, I had his arm around me a lot. But yeah, I'd never been to the place. I, it 
it wasn't half as backward as I expected. I'll be completely honest. Mm, different to what you thought. Yeah. And you got stuck into it and you had a, and you built a great career out of it along the way, which we'll talk about shortly. Mm-hmm. So you have got three kids. I have. Twins. Twins. Five. Yeah. Twins and, uh, <laughs> and your wife, Laura. Mm-hmm. So let's just talk about that for a minute because you went on a bit of a journey to, to become a parent. And I'm sure along the way, being an expat had all the challenges of being a husband as well along the way. You must have done because most of us did, yeah? Yeah, so... I moved, so I, like I said, I moved out in February 2010. Laura and I were to get, we'd actually just bought our first house about in the, about six months before. In England? Mm-hmm. Just bought our first house, moved in, and then I got offered the job, uh, which didn't go down very well initially. So the plan was I move out in February, sort of scope it out, make sure that I was going to stay. And then Laura was coming out later that year. So Laura eventually moved out in September. Um, we then got married, I think, three years after that, three or four years after that, um, and then started trying to have children straight away, which uh, d- didn't happen naturally for us. So after two years of trying, um, we went down. Well, we, we initially went to a clinic. Laura talked me into it. I didn't want to go at the time. Went to a clinic for us both to get tested because we didn't understand why we weren't falling pregnant. And it turned out I'd got a low sperm count and Laura had got a low AMH count, I think they call it. So basically how they described, how I understand it is, your chances of getting someone pregnant is low, your chance of getting pregnant is low, chances are slim to none, put that together sort of thing. So we started then uh, going through IVF, which is an expensive hobby in the Middle East where there's no NHS, there's no financial support, you've got to pay for all of that yourself. And the boys, I've got twin boys, but it wasn't until the fifth round that Laura fell pregnant with the boys. So five five rounds of IVF, which is, you know, difficult for women because of, of what they have to go through with the injections and stuff. How were you, how, how, when you experienced that before the boys came along and before you got pregnant, what was it like as a journey? We went into it with his eyes shut, just naively. We were kids, all the way kids. We were 20s, in his late, mid to late 20s at the time. I went in it very went went into it very naively with a view of I pay X amount twelve thousand thirteen thousand pound whatever it was at the time and we walk away with a baby. I never once got mentioned that it might not work. It never once got mentioned that it might not happen. It never once got mentioned that you might have to do this multiple times. And I think we both went into it with that. And then when we went through the procedure, were more Laura than me. And then literally got a phone call from a receptionist saying, "Yeah, hey, it's not worked. Um, do you want me to book an appointment with Dr. I'll not say his name, but do you want me to book an appointment with Dr. X and come in and speak to him? And he was just like, what do you mean it's not worked? And that were like a sedgemer. And then just going again and again and again. The worst bit was it just broke Laura every time we went through it. It was horrendous being there yeah it it wasn't a pleasant experience let's put it that way and when you and when you went through it do you do you feel that you went through it together or do you feel that she went through it and it almost like you were I, an out of body experience almost looking down at it what was it like i felt a bit like a passenger on it if i'm honest um they were just i didn't know what to say 
I didn't know what other than don't worry it'll work we can go again and I just felt I've never felt as helpless so for me I'm quite logical and quite pragmatic in that if you do A, B, C and D you get here like the, the quickest way from any two routes is a straight line and I'm also quite I like to control the situation I like to understand the situation they may as well be speaking to me in a foreign language I had no idea what was going off. I had no idea w what was good, what was bad, what was working, what wasn't. And every clinic we went to, it's as much sales as anything else from my experience, what I found, mm -hmm. where, oh, the reason that's not worked is because of this. So let's do this extra test, then it'll work for X, Y, Z reason. Then it don't work again. I know why it's not worked. Let's do this test and these tests are like an extra five thousand, six thousand pounds a throw every time. And I remember one of the clinics we went to, we had genetic testing done. So basically, they test the embryos before they put them back in, so they work out which embryos are the best ones. I remember seeing this piece of paper. I think there were four embryos, and next to this piece of paper, it said, "Boy, girl, girl, boy," and that was the first time for me that hike. I realised that this is real, that they are, they were babies, if you like. Well, embryos, but yeah, that were a big kick in the teeth. So when you when you think about the emotions at the time, what? Because lots of people won't understand this. They they won't have been able to get their head around it. They've never been on this type of journey. But what what type of emotions did you feel on like a consistent basis? And what what, what was Laura feeling? I just felt numb to it, really. But just guilt. So guilt of that the only thing that I always ever wanted is a family. From his first meeting, that was all she ever wanted not being able to feel like I was a big part of the reason why I couldn't provide that. So there was guilt there. There was, um, we were at an age, like we'd got a very good circle of friends as well. And every, we were, I think we were the first to get married out of everyone. Then everyone got married a couple of years after that. But then everyone started falling pregnant. And it was like, obviously happy for them but feeling sad for yourself at the same time and feeling guilty for feeling that way. And you can tell people didn't want to tell you that they were pregnant. So what arguably should have been the happiest day of their lives, you could tell they dreaded telling us. That was hard. And did you experience that with any people in particular? Yeah, with everybody. As everyone's falling, like very close friends, getting pregnant and you can see it in their eyes how guilty they felt announcing that they were having kids when they knew we'd been going through all this that was really tough so they must have been thinking how on earth do we tell them yeah and i imagine they were sat at home having that exact conversation yeah. that was how do i yeah how do we tell you on laura you shouldn't do you know what i mean like guilt fell for that as well that was hard Talk to me about your relationship with Laura, about the impact it had on the relationship. Did it did it did it make you stronger together? Did it did it 
push you apart? Was was, was there because in, instinctively human beings try and find a reason external to themselves that something doesn't work as opposed to taking the responsibility on and so that that's just a natural step is that part of what you went through as well or um i think it definitely brought it was very testing at the time and also around that time i was flying around the region for work so i was away three or four days a week and i do think we became quite distant Looking back, but I think knowing what we know now, it probably made us a lot stronger. I mean, look, we're happier now than we've... I think we're stronger now as well than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just saying that, I mean that. And I don't know. Like, if we'd have not gone through that, would we be as good as we are now? I, I don't know. So in hindsight, I do... I try and look for the blessing in it. I try and look for the blessing in every bad situation. And that's what I take from that. And back then, you were carrying a few kilos... A few tens of kilos. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so uh, back back at that point, then uh, uh, your worst point around then. How much did you weigh at the? One twenty. One hundred twenty kilos. Twenty kilos. And then, how much did you lose? I lost almost forty kilo. Wow, that's just incredible. Is that a third of your body weight? Yeah. You lost, like carrying a husky on my back. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You wonder, you wonder how you could have carried that much weight. Yeah, I, when you... I, yeah, I had this conversation was only the other week, actually. I mean, I lose five kilos, and I'm like, my God, you know, I feel like a, light as a feather. I'm, I'm, I'm bouncing around, but 40 kilos. But did, did you feel really overweight at the time, or did you just feel normal? No, I felt. So I boxed growing up as a kid. So I was super fit as a kid, like, and boxing's obviously a weight, a, a, a sport where you make weight. Yeah. I'm constantly watching my weight. Moved to Abbey Abbey at 22. And then, so stopped boxing when I was 21, moved to Abu Dhabi when I was 22, and then started boozing at the weekends. And then half a stone turned into a stone, turned into two stone. And then we got married. And I lost a load of weight for the wedding again. And then we went on a month long honeymoon after we got married. I'll start back up again when I get back. And then it was leading up to. Christmas, I'll start back up again in the new year. And then, oh, but we're going only in three months, so I'll start back coming after that. And then it just happened again, naturally, putting weight on, gaining more weight, gaining more weight. And I I think at that time, I naively just said to myself, I've done it once, I can do it again mm. when I need to. Mm. Don't feel I need to yet. <laughs> and then clothes started getting bigger. And then tailored suits stopped fitting. And then we started through all the IVF stuff. And when Laura got pregnant with the kids, that was when I went, I don't want to be a fat dad. I need to make a change. And then the boys were born. And the boys, we had a rough birth with the boys. They spent two weeks in NICU, which was hard. But then when they were in NICU, well, I'll start when they get out. How old are you? I remember you telling me they had there was some, they had an illness of some sort, didn't they, when yeah. they were very young? Because mm. you were doing research online about that. I think I was talking to you at yeah. the time. What was it called? Pseudo-hypoaldosteronism. Wow, the fact that you're from Sheffield and you can even say that. <laughs> I can't spell it. But... And, and so the, the the boys were born with this this illness that you were trying to yeah. work on and get, get solved and mm. dealing with different doctors as well. So that must have been mega stressful as well. Oh, very, yeah. So it, it's basically, it's, it's this ultra rare salt wastage disease. The easiest way I understand it, and what one of the doctors said to me, he says, imagine 
diabetes is your body can't control blood sugar levels. This is like diabetes, but for salt levels. So the boys were born a month premature and they lost loads of weight. So Jasper in particular lost a third of his body weight. They were only five pounds when you were less than five pounds when you were born. And they were just, they weren't putting weight on at all. They feed them through a drip. They weren't putting weight on. They were still losing weight and they didn't understand why. And it took about five or six days before they even, and it, the, the only reason they found out, so one of the consultants in NICU, in, uh, new, in neonatal intensive care, in the neonatal intensive care unit, he'd read this paper on this this disease once. Um, so he brought in a specialist, spoke to the specialist, specialist, right, do this blood test, this blood test, and this test. They did the test and it turned out that they'd both got it. But what was really unique about it was that the boys were non-identical twins. So it's just, they're essentially two completely separate babies. Uh-huh. Like two sperm, two eggs, two sacks, two comp- like Henry's got brown eyes, Jasper's got blue eyes, the chalk and cheese. And the fact they both got it, that's what they couldn't get their head around. It's like the chances of getting it is one in... 660,000, I think one of the doctors said. Yeah. And they said the fact they both got it is you have more chance of getting struck by lightning three times or winning a lottery three times in the same day. So there was that. And yeah, that was tough. So they were on steroids and salt in the milk. and So you go through this huge amount of heartache and pain with IVF. It's not working. You... Don't know how to deal with it. It's a, a new experience for both of you. You then get the joy that she's pregnant and then these two little rascals are about to come into this world. And so big sigh of relief. It's like, yes, we're pregnant. We're going to have a baby. You then have the babies. They then get sick. So more stress for you then. That obviously has, has had, a, had an impact on your health as well because... You weren't living your healthiest life like everyone can see on camera right now, which I'm sure you're auditioning for gladiators later. <laughs> <laughs> he stopped here on the way to his audition <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know what role he's going for, but uh, Schwarzenegger's getting a bit old now, and so I think he might be replacing him. <laughs> um, so, so, so what happened there? The, the boys obviously recovered from the illness. You, you went through some treatment with them and you got them back on, on, on the straight and narrow, mm-hmm. which was a big relief. And so the, then what, was, what was the next thing that came your way which, which took the wind out of your sails? From a health perspective. From a life perspective. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so we went through that with the boys and then we got the boys home. And then that was in 2018. And then in the summer of 2019, my mum got diagnosed with terminal cancer. Terminal cancer. Mm. How old was your mum? She was. She was fifty-six when she died. And what type of cancer did she have? Breast cancer. And that was the final straw when I started getting my health in order. So, how long did you have your mum with you after she was diagnosed? Less than two years. So you never met Aubrey, daughter. Your daughter. What kind of a grandmother was she like with your boys? She worshipped her. But the only thing she ever wanted was a granddaughter. 
she didn't make that a secret from me being a young age because there's no girls in the family. None. Oh. So she was going to be the first. Well, she is the first. My mum never met her. What, what do you remember of your your mum's relationship with her, her grandsons? She just worshipped her. Um, from the boys being born in June 2018. Between then and her getting diagnosed with cancer, literally a year later, I bet a year later, I bet she spent, bearing in mind we lived in Abu Dhabi and my wife and my mum lived in the UK and my mum worked. I bet she spent three months with Solid. Like she was forever out of hours. Second she got back, she's planning the next trip, booking the next trip. She just, yeah, she was amazing with them. really good. Do you have brothers and sisters? Pardon? Do you have brothers and sisters? So both you and your brother, are you close? Yeah. And has he got kids as well? Yeah, my brother's got a son. Isn't he? Oh, there are boys everywhere, aren't there? Mm. <laughs> when you when you look back at your time with your mum, when you look back across your life and you think about your fondest memories, can you remember your first memories? I always think about this myself. Can you remember your first memories with your mum and mum? Um, I remember my fifth birthday party. That's probably my earliest memory. Do you? Yeah. Well, I say, I, this comes from the day. I don't know if I can remember it or when I've seen photos and I've made a story up in my head. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I remember cake. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cake. <laughs> and they got cl- clowns, Bozo and I think they were called Bozo and Jeff or something like that. Clowns came around to the house. I wonder, do you remember your first memory with your dad? Is that clearer? Um, probably taking me to Sunday football. Okay. Probably a bit older. Because I, I, I'm just trying to think about it myself. And I remember, I remember my dad teaching me how to ride a bike. And I also remember we used to have stairs in our house where there wasn't a down bit. There were just the stairs. And I remember I got my head trapped between two of the stairs. <laughs> it explains so much. <laughs> How long were you there for? <laughs> a week. <laughs> they used to, if, if I would go to bed and the only way I could watch TV is if I crept onto the stairs and I used to stare between the gaps on the stairs at my dad watching TV in the living room. And one day I put my head through to watch and um, realised I can't get it out. You know when you have the carpet that kind of wraps around each step? <laughs> but I remember that. But what I, when I asked you about, do you remember, have you got a memory with your mum? I think about my mum and I can't remember my first memory with my mum because maybe because she was just always present because that's what mums do. They're kind of always there, whereas dad's kind of like come in and out of your 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 memories because they, they they have significant moments like riding a bike or a birthday party and stuff like that i was in my mum's arm i was born i was born at home i wasn't even born in a hospital oh, wow. so it's it's and it's mad when you think about it but obviously we're all 
I don't know about you, but I'm definitely, I was definitely close to my mum, really close to my mum. I remember mum's hair when I was very young. Mum had these huge perm. Yeah. <laughs> huge perm and these huge Deirdre Barlow glasses. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> um, when, you, when you think about growing up and having a mum like that, what kind of a mum was she to you? She was so loving. I was a nightmare. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> now she's a teenager. My mum was very, my mum was very loving, did everything for us. My dad was, I get my work ethic from my dad, let's put it that way. My dad was very, was a little bit harsh growing up, I think, with things. Well, you worked for me for a few years, your dad didn't work that hard then if you get into your dad. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I survived working for you, I think. So as we as we as we as we think about those times in your life, you know, you've had you've had this journey that you've been on. You've been I mean, just from what you told me so far, you've been been through a lot. You've been through an awful lot. But it's beautiful to see you now in the spirit that you've got and the success that you've had. And we'll talk about that shortly. But lastly, let's just finish on me understanding a bit more about your family. So I want to make sure I'm clear on it. Because there's one person you don't ever talk about, and that's your dad. And I don't know why you don't talk about it, but I've known you for all these years and I've never had a conversation with you about your dad. So just, just you say you've got the same work ethic as him. Work ethic as him. Tell me some more about him. What kind of a guy is he? Um, he's very... I get told a lot on my dad's carbon copy. My wife tells me that when we are arguing. <laughs> my mum used to tell me that if I'd done something wrong. Um, my dad's very headstrong, very argumentative, very aggressive. Is <laughs> that you? Well, I think at times, yeah. Um, he... Yeah. So, look, my me, me dad, me dad's a market trader. Um, so he, my dad grew up on like one of the roughest council estates in Sheffield and grew up with nothing. And he sort of... He, he wasn't in the full Monty, was he? It wasn't. I actually had my twenty-first birthday party at the Shire Green Club where they filmed the Four Months ago. <laughs> so we do know the place very well. But um, he just around the corner from that, funnily enough, <laughs> on the Flower Estate. Um, and so my me, me dad, he bounced around a lot of jobs and started working on the markets when he, I think, it was twenty, and he did quite well for himself. Worked very, very long hours, and my dad's always had. And he says it out loud all the time. He's, if you're going to do something, you put 110% in or don't bother. And that was something what he always tried instilling in me and my brother. So anything we did, it was life or death. Like, I used to box as a Well, I played football first. And I remember we'd get home on a Sunday after football and he'd kick me out on the garden and lock the door. And... Because Billy Rowley could do 100 kick-ups. I could only do 20. So he'd make me spend two hours on the back garden doing kick-ups or kicking the ball against the garage for two hours before he let me back in the house. Mm-hmm. That was my dad. And he came from a place of love. But at the time, I hated him for it. Like when I used to box, so part of boxing, part of the boxing training just do your road work, which is basically get up in the morning and running. So he used, and my dad used to go to the markets at between 4 and 5 a.m. So he'd get me out of bed, kick me out of the house, lock the door, and my mum weren't allowed to let me back in until 6 to make me go and do my road work. Mm-hmm. That was my dad. 
Tough love. Yeah. 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 Tough love. I think a lot of dads have that kind of mentality though, don't they? They don't they don't know that they think it's soft if you're empathetic and compassionate <laughs> and you listen. They they probably only can teach in the way they were taught. Yeah. And and often that kind of like moves down the line, doesn't mm. it? And different kids react to it in different ways. If you, you know, if you see my two, I'm sure I'm pretty much I only teach the way that I was taught as well. But one really reacts positively to it. And the other one's like yeah, same with me and my brother. You don't care, you know, type of feeling, you know. Why, why are you being so mean to me? Where the other one's like, yeah, I'll show you, Dad, you know. Yeah. And the, you do know what I mean? Yeah. So which one was it, you or your brother, that was the... I... Yeah, so I was pretty much two fingers up, F-U attitude, uh-huh. as my brother would just roll over uh-huh. and just give into it. Have you read David Coggins' book, Can't Hurt Me? Mm-hmm. So obviously that's much more extreme, but his childhood, you know, imagine living in that with him and his brother, you know, horrendous situation. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about you and your career. So you're a financial advisor. You've been one for a long time. I know Mm because you've worked with me for a long time, but then you became a coaching client of mine. And how long ago was that? That was, Laura's pregnant with the boys. So that would have been, oh, was she pregnant? Or was it before? 2017, I think. 2017, so we're now nearly six years ago. Yeah, six, seven, so you, so you get some coaching advice from me about how you can do more business and all that normal stuff we do, and then we talk about social media. Yep. Okay, let's produce some content. And I, I have this conversation with everybody I mentor, and everybody listens intently and makes notes and has great excitement while they're sat talking to me about what it's going to be like and what they're going to do. I know there's some fear in there as well. And many people, although promise to do it, might dip their toes in the water, but don't truly do it. And I think the industry of financial advice is such a fantastic example of that, isn't there? Yeah. You know, who's out there regularly creating content, teaching financial literacy, getting people to understand what's available to them. And and, and I'd argue there are in this country where we are right now, maybe one or two. Okay. In the UK, maybe, maybe 10 or 20, but not, not really anymore. What, what excited you about going on the journey of creating content? <laughs> Is that a loaded question? Or That's what? a very true question. You know that. I've, I hated it. So, yeah, so you said to me, you need to start making videos. And at the time, I felt I was, I was massively overweight as well. So I didn't feel comfortable with myself. I wasn't confident. I didn't feel comfortable on camera. I hated every second of it. And... You're the only reason that I did it and stuck with it, but I hated every minute of it. And I bet it took me probably two years of doing it before I started getting any glimpse of enjoyment out of it at all. And looking back, I don't know why I stuck it. Well, I do know I stuck it at you because I trust you explicitly. I always have done. And... The fact you kept saying to me, they're getting better, they're getting better, you've got to get there, they're getting better, stick at it, keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Then you introduced me to a couple of other people, which I don't know if you paid them to say this, but they were then saying the same to me. <laughs> and every bit of validation I ever got was either from you or from people associated with you. Uh-huh. And then I think one day the penny just clicked. And did it, did it one day, did there, was there a lead generated or was there someone who inquired or one, one day someone said, oh, actually that resonates with me. Did something happen like that? Or did you just get comfortable with it and say, this is, I just got more comfortable with it. 
And I also looked around at all the people that had within, in my industry in particular, that had done it for a couple of weeks or a month and then stopped doing it. And I just, I just kept thinking, there was this niggling noise at the back of my head just saying, there's something in this, there's something there. And I kept doing it, but it took me three years to get a single lead. Making content. Three years to get a lead for making content. Really? Not a deal, a lead. It's been three years to get a lead. Wow. And you produce content all that time. Yeah. But you don't know who's watching it. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? You don't know who's watching it. Because I'm sure you get it. Funny enough, the people that most of the clients I've taken from it are not the ones you see on the comments. Uh Uh-huh. The people that watch it quietly in the background and then send me a private message. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, let's talk about this content then, because it was pretty much um, producing content, teaching people about some basics of financial planning. One of the great videos you did was about Bill, uh, Tom, Dom, and what was it? The three? Oh, Tim, Tom, Dom. Tim, Tom, and Dom. So the Tim, Tom, and Dom, and we did the property one. And I know that real estate brokers were asking you how that works and you giving them advice on stuff they should know about, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. But you did this animated uh, animated video, which um, will... I, I thought it was just great. You know, you sat with a notepad and you drew some pictures out and you, you animated a scene. Um, then you obviously told the story about how challenging it was going through the whole IVF journey and whatnot, which which really, you know, connected people with the real person behind the, this content. And then the content has slowly got better and better and better. It's educational. And now it's become almost like, um, I would say, high quality production, lots of planning, um, great, comedic satirical episodes poking fun at either the industry um or people thinking that they can second guess or get rich quick or find another solution which isn't the tried and tested path that you know only so so well so how 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 did you get to that place where or do you remember the time that you first brought humor into it yes so when i first started making the videos i got a lot of backlash from people within my industry yeah so so-called friends and colleagues and peers and yeah. whatever you want to call them. And there wasn't much directly to me, but it was more indirect. Yeah. Where snide comments would be made and they'd get back to me. Little digs. Yeah. Yeah. He's embarrassing himself. He's embarrassing the industry. He's making a show of himself. Um, who does he think he is? All sorts of like just negative stuff. And you said something to me at the time. Which was, and he's always stuck with me, which was, your opinion of me is none of my business. And I bet you said it to me a thousand times. And he, what you think of me is none of my business. Yeah. Yeah. And it was only when I really got my head around that, that I started making the content that I, was when I started making the content that I really want to make, which is, like I said, poking fun at things, which is, bringing comedy into it, which is laughing at myself. Because I'm a strong believer, if you're laughing, if you're smiling, if you're enjoying what you are consuming or trying to educate yourself on, you're going to retain more information. So that's why I do it. And when I say it out loud, it's insane because I was not making the content I want to create for fear of people in my industry judging me. When they're the only people that are never going to buy from me. Yeah. They're the only people that will never be my clients. And... When I got my head around that, I think was when it went to another level. And then now that content, whereas we see the comments online, you've got a, a, a fan base within the industry as well now. 
yeah. got these people. I, I see the comments, you know, yeah. I see the comments from people within the industry that are like, that's the funniest video you have made. Oh, that's the same one that we're bitching about. Then. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, I can imagine. Ones that were talking negatively about you now ago, and that's fantastic. So you've come almost full circle. What do you what do you think of those people that were prepared to put other people down that were trying to find a way to develop their business? What do you make of those types of characters? If it makes them feel better. So there, there has to be there has to be, Joe, though, an element of <laughs> Oh yeah, there is, don't get me wrong. Yeah. 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 Because it's so sweet, isn't it? His victory is so sweet. And it's like uh, the, the, the success you've had by going down this path and, and persisting with it has demonstrated that absolutely you can make content and you can uh, educate and inspire an audience of people so that they can take action and do the right thing with their money. Okay, But also show the whole industry that has been stuck in its ways for so long that are so media shy Um and think the only way of generating leads is to get on the phone and make a load of cold calls, okay, that, that they're wrong and that's not the only way. Would you agree? Yeah, big time. And I, I do think there's more people now off the back of it. I, there are more people trying to, there are more people creating content. I do get more messages from people asking me how I do it, asking, well, they don't want to know how I do it. It's more, so what does it generate? What business do you get? What's the result? Yeah. And I'll always help people with it and I have this conversation with Ryan who works for me he's like why do you tell people your secrets I'm like one it's not really a secret you can just copy what I do if they really wanted to secondly I actually quite enjoy helping people and thirdly don't like be doing it within a month well that's the thing isn't it because I say that about podcasts you know the, 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 there are thousands of podcasts but when you actually start looking at podcasts and seeing how many episodes these all these content creators these podcast producers have actually made there's loads of podcasts out there with seven episodes yeah or seven episodes, then a three-month gap, and then another seven episodes. But that consistency of producing the podcast week in, week out, like producing the content week in, week out, is what eventually gets you noticed, respect. And and also, I mean, and you can think about it from two points of view, helping other people, educating people with your financial advisory satirical videos, or generating business revenue, either way. And as long as it's a win-win for everybody, that yeah. doesn't matter. But it's that consistency that makes the difference. How do you keep coming up with ideas? How do you keep being creative? I saw a video the other day. You're in a Superman outfit the other day. I've obviously, I've obviously seen you. I've seen you have naked showers. Um, I've seen you uh, eating a, a, a oat-free oatmeal, and I've seen you, and I've seen you eating a healthy donut for breakfast. And I've also seen you uh, having more cold showers and then doing yoga. So, where do these ideas come from? Because really, the, the, for me, okay. I, I, there's an extra benefit for me or an extra connection because it's you that makes me laugh even more. But other people are looking at that. And, you know, and I talk to people in my company and I'm like, have you seen his latest video? And they're like, oh my God, I can't believe that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, all, all from a place of, I could never do that. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, you're fearless. So where do these ideas come from? Here, there and everywhere. So I get, I consume a lot of content myself uh -huh. from different industries. And I, I've got no shame in saying that I beg, borrow and steal if I see a good fitness video that I like. It's very easy to adapt that to finance. If I see certain people I follow, such as like Alex Hormozy, mm -hmm. I love his content. So everywhere I look, really, I try, I try and find inspiration. And so if you go through my saved Instagram posts, there's hundreds of them, which I go through. I also, I, f I have a, a very set morning routine. I'm up very early in the morning. So I have a couple of hours for myself every morning. I find for me, that's my most creative time. And I can sit for hours, I just love writing. 
Like, I love writing out video ideas, content ideas, and writing on my and either on my phone uh, or on my laptop. I use the notes app, Apple, but I'd love just love writing. I find it like really sort of peaceful, calming, meditative, whatever you want to call it. But just me on my own in silence, just writing out ideas. I can come up with loads on the, on the go. Tell me about what advice you would give to people. Let's say someone came to you and said, look, Joe, I'm, I'm inspired by your work. I'd like to be a content creator. I'm in the same industry as you. Could you, know, it, 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 could you take me under your wing and teach me some stuff? Or could you spare a couple of hours of your time? What, what, would, what tips and strategies would you give that person that came to you with vulnerability mm-hmm. and you were willing to help? What would you tell them to do? In terms of what to create? Yeah, they know, they, because most people don't even know where to start, do they? You know? I, I would start with what are the main questions you ask by your clients. Okay. So what do clients ask you? So when you're in a meeting, when you're on a call, when you're having catch-ups with your clients, so what what's the regular feedback you get? What do people want to know? What are people struggling with? What What are the main pain points that your clients are facing? And then think of topics around that and then create content around that. I can sell, sell's probably the wrong word, but I can sell the idea of budgeting and saving a thousand different ways on my videos. But if you actually tear away my, if you go through my videos and look at the underlying, I bet I can write 10 videos on one subject mm-hmm. by using different, I'm very visual and I like analogies as well. So I can use different analogies for different things and you might watch the same video, but me saying it 10 different ways. And it might say, it might be the eighth or the ninth version of that and me using a different analogy of X over Y before you go, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I try and explain things in different ways, which also comes up with more ideas. I think you do do that. I think you, um, you appeal to people that can understand your accent. Do you ever get people that are challenged by that? You speak really quickly or you've got a strong Sheffield or Yorkshire accent. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And do people say we need subtitles or do people say, what, what kind of feedback do you get? So I get... Uh, somebody actually... So, what's it called? Someone sent me a link the other day. This is gospel truth. Two days ago, because I screenshot and sent it to Ryan who works with me. Someone sent me a link the other day. Um, for a guy on YouTube called Dr. Eric Someone, and he's a speaking coach. No, honestly, I think you should watch his videos. Like, thanks for your, thanks for your positive feedback. I'll take I, it on I, board. I, 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 <laughs> I've shared your videos with some people. Yeah, and um, yeah, Anna, my wife, she obviously thinks you're great, but she's got no idea what you're saying. <laughs> so when I get excited, when I get excited, and you know this, when I get excited, my speed of speech rapidly increases. And so I do have to rein myself in every. You go quickly. You got a strong accent, but you also use slang from where you're from to go, <laughs> and that that slang is is, is very relevant to, to you know, there's some yeah. noggins and bellends and that kind of stuff. In there. <laughs> but obviously, I, I get it. It makes me laugh. But some other people must be sitting there going, "What did he say? What was he meaning?" Yeah. Every now and again, so so there's uh, so, some days I have a videographer that I work with. He creates edits to videos. Other days, it's just me with my camera, and I send it to Ryan who works for me, and Ryan, Ryan edits them. Every now and again, I'll get, every now and then, I'll get a phone call off Ryan. I can't put that in. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't say that. <laughs> I was on television today, and I said the word damn. 
Okay, so I was on this quiz and I got a quiz question wrong and I went, oh, damn. Like that, they said, can we retake it, please? Really? Yeah. That was literally this morning. And I was like, they said, yeah, we're ultra, ultra careful. Just don't want to offend anyone. And I'm like, I said, damn, it's what stops water coming out. <laughs> They're like, no, it isn't. <laughs> I was on a podcast about a month ago and the girls phoned me before the podcast he was. They said, just so you're aware, we're a family-friendly show, so... No swearing. I'm like, yeah, no, that's fine. They're like, yeah, but we've watched some of your videos, Joe, and you can't swear. I'm like, no, I, I get it, I get it, but, but just none, no swearing at all. I'm like, right, right, am I that bad? Are you talking bollocks? Yeah. <laughs> on me three times. I know it's like. So, what? As we look at your journey and and, mm -hmm. and, and where you've been and where you've come, you've gone, you've gone from. Um, no family, going through hell, creating a family. You've gone through some changes in your life with your health. You've gone on to lose an enormous amount of weight. I've never seen you in this kind of condition ever. And I, you know, every time I see you, you know, we saw each other just a few months ago, didn't we, yeah. in London? Uh, you just keep getting better and better and better. Thank you. What when, when, when we think about what the outcome is and what you want to achieve, what what really is the outcome for you? <coughs> From a from a what? From a physical point of view? I want, to, I want to go from a lifestyle, a life perspective. I want to know from a career perspective. I think about all that work that you're doing and this, this, just, this things keep getting better and better. But is there a goal? Is there somewhere you're, tr you know, you're trying to go? Um, is there something you're trying to achieve? Do you want to be the best? And if you do, what's the best? If you want to be, you know, what is it? Um, so I'm, I'm, actually, I'm really big on setting myself 90-day goals. So I've actually got them all in my phone because um, I write them in notes and I, I sort of tick them off as I go along. So in terms of Longer term planning, it's more a case of just really enjoying the journey. Like I've not, it's changed drastically over the last two or three years from what I wanted back then. And my definition of success has greatly changed as well since my mum passed. So before my definition of, definition of success was chasing every lead. It was get being, being the top advisor in my industry, winning every accolade, winning every award, doing everything I can, working every hour God send. And family had always been really important to me, but it was only when my mum passed away and I went through a very dark couple of months that I realised what's really important. So you put a lot of things in perspective for me. Right now, my definition of success is the school run. It's bath and bed the kids every night. It's not travelling for work every week like I used to do. It's, it's, going on holiday with Laura and the kids for a week and switching my phone off. I'm just being fully present in that moment. And that for me is, is a successful, happy life. Because before I was running myself into the ground before and he just weren't sustainable at all. I wasn't healthy, wasn't looking after me body. I wasn't looking after me mental health. I was all over the place. And I didn't know where that was coming to go in. And I, back then, I'd got these long-term goals. I'd got these long-term visions. And what I've found over the last, since my mum died, really, last two years, is now focusing a lot more on what makes me happy, what I enjoy doing, being present with people that I love. So I set myself, I don't know if I answered your question yet. So I set myself quarterly goals on sort of five key areas. So... A focus, finance, fitness, family, and fun. Focus, finance, family, fitness, and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Every quarter. 
So you have a three-month goal every time on focus, finance, family, fitness, and fun. I'm trying to say that over and over. Yeah. So I remember it. Focus, finance, family, fitness, Five and fun. And they, 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 all, they all have to be achieved every quarter. There's never... Yeah, and they reset them every quarter. It'll be different every quarter. But like, so like one of my focus goals, people laugh at when I tell them this. I love meeting new people. Uh-huh. So I set myself a quarterly target of meeting 90 new people every quarter. Uh-huh. Knowing the name, asking them the name, finding something out about them. I just love meeting new people and making So one person a day for 90 yeah, days. Yeah, exactly what it is, yeah. Every meet day. 90 new people, no matter what type of person that is, meet 90 new people. Yeah. Every quarter. That's, that's not a bad way. Why do you think that kids aren't taught financial planning, financial understanding, knowledge, not math, but how to, you know, balance a, a, a bank account, how to understand credit cards and stuff like that. Why do you think they're not taught that? I think two things. One is it's just the way it's always been done. And second is I think the system's broken in that, look, all the school system, particularly in the UK, because that's where I'm from, the school system in the UK is to tick boxes, okay, because these the Ofsted inspection team come in and they basically work out what determines what sort of budget a school gets is what mark they get at Ofsted. What determines what mark they get at Ofsted is the results of those exams at the end of year 11 when the kids graduate. So the kids are just taught to memorize and tick boxes. And so that's one. And the other thing is I think it's the lack of education with the teachers as well. So, the worst pe- a lot of the worst people I've met are managing their own money are teachers. Mm. So they co- they do need to bring someone in externally to teach the kids this sort of stuff. But schools do change. Schools do bring in different principles, different rules, because we're going through the whole hoo ha with every child allowed to be decided whether they're a he or a him or a she or a her. You know that didn't exist when I was a kid, and you know all this whole blooming non-binary and pronouns and garbage nonsense that exists with that. Schools have brought that in, so they do bring in things they think are important. Is there some bigger overseeing, you what know, conspiracy? Always got Illuminati that wants to keep <laughs> wants to keep kids as uneducated as possible, so that they can keep them. But who would benefit from that, though? If, if that population, if it was that. population control. But for what benefit? Well, the government wants to control the population and make sure that people don't grow so that they can keep rounding them up, herding them up, making them do what they want them to do. Like, 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 like all take a, a Moderna vaccine or a Pfizer jab, <laughs> you know? You know, was it, was it, was it, what's the UFC guide, Dana, Dana White? Dana White said, where was, where's COVID? It, it was here last week. It's gone. Where did it go? Where did it go? And so, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do wonder because it's absolute common sense to teach kids how credit cards work. Oh, big it's big. common sense to teach kids how to budget. It's that it's common sense. What a mortgage is. Yeah. What, what taxes. What, yeah. How to open a bank account. Yeah. How to run a bank account. Yeah. That's like, that's like more important than teaching them a load of stuff that they learn in math that they'll only use a calculator for for the rest of their lives anyway. <laughs> And no matter what you do with life, guess what you need to manage? 
your money. But then it's also the psychology of money as well. You know, we talk about mindset around lots of things. You know, you, the, the, the ability you've got to be able to lose the weight and, and build the muscle the way that you have is all to do with your mindset. You know, we all know the practical thing is don't eat shit, you know, eat the right food and do the right exercise. But you have to be on a, you have to have a belief system around yeah. that. You have to be committed to it because you believe it's going to work. And it's the same with, with money for me. It's like psychologically, because subconscious spend is what plays a massive role in people's lives. And now they've got their credit cards on their mobile phones. It's even worse. It's like tap, 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 tap. You know, I, I did it yesterday. Tapped four times in an hour. And I was 1,500 dirhams out, you know. It was gone. Yeah. And so it's very easy to go down that path because you don't think about the, the ramifications of those types of actions. You don't, you don't believe that it's going to cause you any harm. Okay, or you can't see the benefit of not doing it because your mind is not educated in the right way. So when I look at financial planners, it's like, what are we trying to achieve here? And I, uh, should we all be should we all be committing to going and getting into community groups where there are families and young children, where or, or even teenagers for that matter, and help them learn and understand? Um, because the banks used to do that. Because when I was a kid. I got an early starters bank account. Yeah, we did when I was. Yeah, and I got from Lloyd's Bank. I don't know, I got I don't know, a gift of some sort or whatever it was, and I got thirty quid in the account. And... Big black horse's head. Yeah, there you go. Something, <laughs> something like that. I got a note, a, a notepad or something, something stupid, a leather bound, a, a leatherette bound notepad. Yeah. And and you know, I I've got this bank account, so you know, and the reason they wanted me to have the bank account is because one day down the road I was going to have some money, and I'm I'm not going to change bank because it's easier not to. Yeah. So, so what responsibility do we have? Okay, you're, you're, you're out there, you're sending that message, you're teaching people about financial advice, but you're teaching that 35-year-old, you're teaching that guy that's gone, oh, shit, I haven't done what I needed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I bought the house, I got the HP payments on the expensive car, I didn't buy the life insurance, bugger, bugger, bugger. That's, that's the guy you're approaching. But what about these people here that, that don't need to become the 35-year-old that goes, darn it? Because you know as well as I do on your videos, compounding interest. Imagine compounding from 18 years old. Yeah. The power of that. The power of being a 16-year-old and saving a fiver a week for 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. I wonder what a fiver a week over 50 years is. It'll be very interesting. Do you, am I giving you content ideas as we're talking about this? You are, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think, do you think that, that, that we have a responsibility in that industry? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. So what... and, it, and, I'll be, and it is actually something that I've been speaking to some friends of mine about in the UK who go around doing talks to schools. And it's something I need to do a lot more outreach for as well. So I do think it's really important. Joe Woodhouse. Mm -hmm. What a journey. To see who you were all those years ago and to see where you were, where you've been and what you've done along the way. I am mega, mega proud for you. I really am. Okay, well done on every success that you've got. Okay, it was lovely to see your wife the other day and have a couple of drinks with her when we were in London. It was a bit mad bumping in at the same place at the same time yeah, to that thing. thing. But but anyway, look, I really appreciate you coming and sharing that story on the show today. Okay, and I hope that uh, you go on and uh, if you're not going to have Spider-Man or Superman, maybe you're going to be Batman next. <laughs> we'll Who knows? <laughs>